Welcome to Wolverine Reads, a theatrical podcast celebrating new plays. I'm Nathaniel Quinn, producing director of Wolverine Theatrics. Today on Wolverine Reads, we have a special treat. Typically, when we focus on a play, we look to the playwright as our special guest. If you've been listening to The State of Mississippi vs. Davis Knight, you'll recognize the billing as excavated by Victoria E. Bynum, dramatized by Marcus France. If none of this sounds familiar, I strongly suggest you go back to episode one of this series. I'll give you a moment to catch up. Now that you've caught up with us, we were fortunate enough to connect up with the author of The Free State of Jones, Mississippi's Longest Civil War. Now this book, which the 2018 movie of the same name is based, is where the information of the case of Davis Knight was originally excavated from. Please enjoy this excerpt from our conversation with history buff, research guru, and wonderfully charismatic and fascinating human being, Victoria E. Bynum. Good morning. Uh, This is Nathaniel Quinn, the producing director for Wolverine Theatrics and Wolverine Reads. Today I'm joined by Victoria Bynum, author of The Free State of Jones. And there's more to the title, right? I'm missing the second half of that. Uh, Mississippi's longest... Mississippi's longest civil war. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for for giving us this opportunity to visit with you. Uh, Do you prefer Victoria or Vicki? Oh, please call me Vicki. Okay. I didn't want to make the assumption, but I know that's how you closed out some of your emails with me. So I wanted to clarify. Um, So thank you for this opportunity, Vicki. In the past, we've interviewed the playwrights, but this is a unique opportunity because this is the the play, The State of Mississippi by uh, verse Davis Knight by Marcus France is based out of part of his, the history of the free state of Jones in Mississippi that uh, as you are credited in his script was excavated by you, um, revolves around the court case of Davis Knight, the miscegenation case of Davis Knight. So this is a, a unique opportunity that we get to visit with you, the author that has inspired and dug up this script. So I wanna thank you for that. Well, I'm just glad to be here. Thank you for this opportunity for me too. Excellent. Um, So why don't you uh, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit of background history, and if you would, one boring thing about yourself. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I... I am a professor of history and a historian. Uh, I taught at Texas State University for uh, 22 years and and have retired from teaching, but not from being a historian. Uh, And I came to history as someone who really was not from an academic background at all. Uh, My parents uh, actually never went to college and I really wasn't encouraged to go to college. And so I'm someone who grew up in the late 50s and uh, well, throughout the 50s and into the 60s and was really drawn to history by uh, the times, the, uh, the, the 50s and the 60s, and especially the 60s, which was a time of the civil rights movement, uh, the Vietnam War, uh, women's rights movement. And so I was drawn to my college education uh, through events around me more than my own background. Uh, And I guess the most boring thing about me is that I can sit for hours doing research without getting (laughs) bored. (laughs) I I just, uh, I do really love historical research. Sometimes I have to make myself quit and do the writing. Sure. 
that's one that uh, as I was working on this play and reading your book, trying to to split my time, um, I I would definitely want to celebrate how you've structured your writing in this book because there, my brain is not a research driven brain, so there are some texts where I find my just things my brain is oozing out my ear as I'm trying to retain information, and I didn't find that through your through your book. I'm um, so glad to hear that. And that was the struggle where it was, I, I got to go dig into the script and apply this, but I want to get to the next bit that's happening in Jones County, but I need to know this and yeah. how to, and so it was, it was a lovely stretch and exercise for my own brain and how I think. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. And I, and I'm impressed that you were able to feel so uh, engaged with it since it starts with the, you know, before the American revolution, before you get all the way up to that, uh, that era of the 19, late 1940s. So some people thought that uh, there was just way too much of an expanse of time, but I really never felt the story could adequately be told without both ends of it. Sure. Well, that's one thing. And I remember this through my college career, whether it was undergrad or graduate school, as we're looking at, you know, and I'm going to keep coming to theater history because that's my background. And it was always, it was always broken out. Here is, we're going to look at this, uh, this civilization in this chunk of time. And then we'll look at this civilization in this chunk of time. And, you know, from 100 to 300 half century spans, but we never looked at how things were cross connected. And I think that's something that you have done beautifully here is as we're looking at these families and, and I know there's plenty of information for what I was able to retain. I know there's just as much that I didn't <laughs> sure, uh, because there's so much there, but being able to track how we got there was so nice because you give these little references for what's going on around the rest of the country or in the rest of the world and being able to attach further out. I think that's what made it so much easier for me, for me to connect to everything because I had a much more uh, global picture for lack of a better term, instead of yeah. that we started big and zeroed in. Yeah. Well, now you have said that you were drawn to history to, to by the events that were around you as you were growing up. But what is it, uh, I know in your preface, you, you mentioned childhood trips to Jones County to visit uh, Piney Woods, correct? Yes. Mississippi mm -hmm. to, to visit your father's family? That's right, yes. And so the first thing that drew me to the Free State of Jones was the realization that, hey, that's the county my dad came from. Uh, and, and so without those childhood experiences, I doubt I would have ever noticed the Free State of Jones because it had been the story of the Free State of Jones had been so neglected by historians. I found it in a footnote of a Civil War textbook and it just caught my eye. I thought, wow, that's, a, that's where my dad came from. My father had never mentioned the Free State of Jones. Part of the reason was he was, he was adopted as a child and taken out of Jones County. So he, he okay. really wasn't there to hear the tales. But yeah, that's, uh, that's what drew me to it. But I was already a, a historian who had written my dissertation and first book when I decided there were just so many things that converged when I realized that after having written my first book, which ended up being about Southern Unionists in the final two chapters, I thought, you know, this sounds an awful lot like that Free State of Jones that dad was, was <laughs> born in. And really, and I just thought my second book was going to be, I was going to go look at this other uh, story about, about Southerners who rose up against the Confederacy and fought pitched battles against the Confederacy because it was a very similar 
a story as the one in North Carolina that I had studied for my first book. Sure. Now I know that your surname, Bynum, it tracks back to the families that were involved heavily in the free state of Jones, correct? That's right, yes. So being, let me see, how, growing up the way that I have, I know my, my dad's parents, and that's about as far back as we know things. Um, we, I know a little bit about Grandma Quinn, but not so much about Grandpa Quinn. So that's not an inherent thing in my uh, background as a human being. What is that like to dig into and explore that and make the discoveries and connections of your own family? I think, I think there's a much greater uh, connection genealogically in the South than there is for some of us further North or up in the Rocky Mountains. And I may be putting my foot in my mouth saying that I'm not gonna speak for everybody, but. No, I think that is true. Family and, and knowing one's forebears is, is, is very, very much a Southern thing. Um, I, had, uh, I had some knowledge of my dad's family, you know, grandparents and all, but I, I honestly, and this sometimes this surprises people because they think I chose to do the Free State of Jones because my family was involved in it. I knew about it because of my dad, but I had no idea that my dad's Bynum ancestors were also divided. They were very divided. What, what became evident the more I researched is that any, everybody from Jones County was in some way or another uh, involved in the Free State of Jones. You really couldn't stay out of it very easily. So uh, when I got into really researching it, I started finding the Bynums and, and that took me even further back to um, the American Revolution uh, Okay. movements of the social and political movements of that time. So that did give me, that did put me on a parallel track where I was both writing what I considered new to be a very important book, yet I was also learning all this about my family. And unfortunately, my father died in 1990, and I just had begun to talk about, you know, doing this, and I was never able to discuss it with him. It, it's, it's, you know, really a disappointing part of it, because I don't know how much he knew about it, if he knew anything at all. Uh, but I know he would have enjoyed learning it just as I did, uh, sure. how how his family was really caught up in it. I mean, I think the most thrilling story for me, I came across this in one of the documents, uh, one of in the um, Confederate papers, is they talked about, I saw the name old man Mark Bynum was supplying arms to Newt Knight <laughs> and the Newt Band. And old man Mark Bynum was the uncle of my great, great, great grandfather. And I just like, wow. I mean, there's just something about that where you think, my God, this is, these are my ancestors and they are participating in uh, an incredible uh, historic uh, battle over the Confederacy. Wow. How exciting. <laughs> yeah, that was exciting. Um, I'm just even trying to wrap my head around that. I don't think I have many stories that I can connect back to. I think the, the closest thing, uh, my grandfather on my mother's side is, is Polish German and he had pictures and a pair of bracers that were his grandfather's when they came over from when he played baseball. So they were oh. like the German, um, like would hold your later hosen up, but that's what he wore to yeah. pull his baseball uniform pants. And I, I had no idea that he played baseball, they're hand stitched, they're gorgeous. But that's about as far back as we can track any of that on mom's side. So it was to be able to track back and back and back and back that way is just fascinating to me. 
Yeah, well, I, I, it's, a, it's a kind of a hobby of mine, and I'm lucky <laughs> to be a historian because I discovered in my first book and then again in this one that kinship is the key to finding unionist networks uh, in communities. And sure. so it's, it, it, it really is a, a methodology that I put right up there with tracing race and gender and, and people's class is sure. kinship. Where's kinship in this? Well, let me ask this then. Is that what drew your attention to the dissident, the, the dissenters and the families that seceded from the Confederacy as, as you tracked backwards? What, what, what draws you to that story that led you to Newt Knight? Wait, I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. Sure. Um, I don't think I worded it very well. So this book, The Free State of Jones, we know revolves around, it, it makes its way into a much bigger network with the Knight family and the Knights, uh, his group of, of dissenters to the Confederacy, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, the Knight band, basically. Yes. Um, and I believe I read someplace else because I, I admit I haven't dug into the other books because this this is the focal point for the play to mm -hmm. me. Um, what is there, was there anything, if there was anything that draws you specifically to the, the unionists in the South, the, those who, and I may be using the word incorrectly, that, that seceded from the Confederacy like Newt Knight? Was that, or was that a, a happy discovery as you were researching back? Well, now I, I do understand your question. When I was writing my dissertation, the name of it was Unruly Women. Uh, I obviously was going to look at, at women who, with the title Unruly Women, who were sort of outside the boundaries of, the, of society or considered deviant, uh, that sort of thing. And I was looking at women who were not enslaved, free Black women of the South, who were an anomaly at that time. And I was looking at a lot at poor white women. And what happened was, I got toward this civil war. One of my uh, history professors had told me, you know, if you're having trouble finding stuff on women, be sure and look at the civil war because women make it into those records a lot. And that's where I discovered Southern white unionists. There were women there, there were slaves involved in it. But basically I came upon the whole phenomenon of white males who dissented against the Confederacy, who opposed secession from the United States. Uh, and so it just broadened the whole picture. Unruly Women remained a book that, for the most part, looked at women according to their, their status, whether they were poor or whether they were plantation mistress, or whether or not they were Black and enslaved or free. But it, in the last two chapters, I really moved over into the whole community, the, the white community of sure. unionists that included men and women, and then the way in which slaves and free people of color were also involved in those activities because they shared an interest in the defeat of the Confederacy. So it was a very interesting interracial struggle uh, against the Confederacy. Of course. And I think it's that I find, in, I find incredibly fascinating because, and this may just be my education or my mis poor understanding or being a, a child and like, oh gosh, we're talking about this and zoning <laughs> out and, and you know doing whatever I was doing. Um, that that's not something that I recall coming up too much in any of my you know history classes, civics classes. It was the North against the South, and 
you think about it, you step back and you think, of course, there were people, there were Southerners that disagreed, but with, that's not something that's focused in on, I think, at least in my education. It certainly wasn't in mine. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that, that, that generally speaking, it wasn't. I think historians that uh, the Civil War are still trying to get it, you know, as integrated as possible, uh, as, as big of a, of a, of a topic uh, the home front. And that's one of the uh, areas of study that has really opened up uh, the world of history to looking more at all this dissension is looking at the home front, moving away from the battlefield. Don't be so exclusively mm -hmm. uh, focused on the battlefield and what's going on in the home front. I mean, I think the image, the traditional image was just that there were just women and children all hovering in the house, you know, hoping their men would come home safe and maybe an occasional raid on the town. But in fact, there were these inner civil wars. We have this phrase now, inner civil war, that's becoming a very general one in civil war history because it refers to the battles going on in the home front. And uh, I had never heard about any of this uh, going to school or even in, uh, even in college, once I started college. And uh, it, it's, it, it changes our whole notion of the so-called solid South, the idea that the white South really rose up in the South, gonna rise again and all of that. I mean, to understand that not only did large numbers of particularly non-slaveholding white farmers, and obviously slaves, mm -hmm. oppose the Confederacy, but, um, but they also rose up, armed themselves, and fought against it. Who knew? You know, who knew that? I, I mean, in North Carolina, which is much, more, much better documented than the Mississippi uh, uh, uprising, for some reason, the records survived. It's just an incredible story of uh, uprising there, an organized organized group, the red, the the, um, uh, the heroes of America, and they their mm -hmm. nickname was the Red Strings because of the red strings they would display to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just uh, it's a story just too important to be neglected, and fortunately, it's not anymore. There's a lot of historians uh, working on this now. Good, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I've made the note about both inner civil war. Uh, battles on the home front and the red strings because I've you have thoroughly but even before this conversation uh, uh, thoroughly inspired me to go back and look more at the south uh, <laughs> and and what what my misconception of the civil war itself may have may be yeah um, so I'm going to start zero, narrowing in a little bit this was researching this this play for me was very unique because I started with you know what's the last chapter of your book versus and then tried to work my way outward into the global view so that I could pull it back in and make sense of things um, um, so I'm curious a little bit about Serena Knight I know she's not a big she's not a, a she is and isn't a key player in this court case um, so I know that she and Newton were married and they had several children. I, that makes sense to me. In the Civil War, it seems like she disappears after Newt, uh, uh, what's the right word? After he- Takes up with Rachel, are you talking? Uh, no, I mean, yes and no. Um, after he, he leaves the, the Confederate army, the words- Oh yeah, and forms this night band or he called it the night company. Yes. Yeah, he comes back home. Yeah. But it seems like she disappears for a while. Is that is that true or is that just how I'm reading things? I think that's how you're reading it. Okay. Uh, it I don't know if you did, you did you ever see the movie The Free State of Jones that came out? They have her disappear in that movie and that's that's all fiction. Okay. Uh, and she, that may be she, some of that confusion. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I really, yeah, I really regretted that decision to have her just be gone. But that was a way, uh, it was a way to make the relationship between Rachel and Newton monogamous, which sure. is not. Um, okay, no, she was there, but around 1890 is to the best of, of the evidence that I've seen, in a, and some of it comes from a former slave of the Knight family. She left in 1890, which was after, or sometime after 1890, Rachel was already dead. So you would think, well, why is Serena taking off and finally leaving Newt Knight now? Well, the, the reason, according to this former slave, her name was Martha Wheeler, is that Newt then immediately took up with Rachel's daughter. He had two children by her also in the 1890s. And according to Martha Wheeler, that was it for, for Serena. She'd had it and she moved out, but she didn't move far. She moved in with her daughter who was married to Rachel's uh, uh, son. So it was still, she was still part of the mixed race community. She just moved to a different household. She didn't want, for some reason, you know, it may, whether it was whether it was this daughter of Rachel or something else, she decided she would not live with Newt anymore. Okay. But before that, uh, they, this was a community in which Newt Knight had children simultaneously with both mm -hmm. Rachel and Serena. And not that this was something all that unique in the South. It's just that he, he did it openly. He acknowledged his children by both women. And I apparently acknowledged his children by George Ann later as well. I know so, that's Rachel's daughter. I'm making sure I have my genealogy. This that's, is where it starts to get confusing. <laughs> that's, that's George Ann. And then it was, was it, uh, she moved in, uh, Serena moved in with Matt, is that right? She moved in with Molly and Jeff, but Molly. Matt is her son who married, married Rachel's daughter. Rachel's daughter. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're actually, you're doing better than many people at this stage. <laughs> uh, George Ann, by the way, was born to Rachel when Rachel was only 13 or 14 years old. So okay. she wasn't all that much younger than Rachel. <laughs> so, and, and. And it's believed that Rachel and Newt were within the same, they were both born within the same year, correct? Uh, yes, okay. I think that's correct, yes. With their, if they're within a year of each other-ish. Yeah, yeah, she died fairly young. One of her descendants said from having too many children was always the family story that she, 1880, she was only 40 when she died. Right, and I mean, looking at the number of children that she had, that. Stands to reason at that time. Yes, she had three or four before the Civil War uh, alliance with Newt Knight began. So what would that do, in your estimation, what would that relationship have been like? Were, would Rachel and, and Serena have been on amicable terms, good terms, sisterly terms? Boy, I tell you, uh, that's a question that I, it's sure. been uppermost in my mind and I've worked and worked and worked on it. And unfortunately, they're just, there are no, their voices aren't, sure don't sure, survive. Sure. Uh, so you'll never get the answer from them. Now I have talked to some of the older descendants and they, they really believe that there was, that the, that the relationship was amicable enough. One, uh, one of the descendants told me that, uh, that Serena came to depend on Rachel a lot because Rachel was was uh, incredibly efficient. She was a great cook, hard worker, all of that sort of stuff. And so you find yourself realizing how 
Well, you know, in a lot of marriages, you often hear about when there's a when 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 one of the persons is having affairs on the side that the other person just pretends not to know it because, in fact, they prefer it that way. <laughs> and in some ways, you you don't we don't know the quality of Newt and Serena's marriage. Uh, and so I, by no means am I making that assumption. I'm just sure. making the point that we don't really even know what the quality of their marriage was at the time that he began, uh, you know, having, having children with Rachel, or was he just such a out and out patriarch who believed it was his right? He certainly didn't give that right to the women that he was involved sure. with. There's no evidence of that. Um, and that's one the things about Newton Knight that I think it's important to recognize that couldn't be recognized in the movie because the movie has to tell a story and it's way right. too complex and he's got to be a hero and all that sort of stuff. But in fact, uh, no matter how class conscious Newton Knight was, or maybe even racially what we would say liberal today, mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean that he also saw women as his equal. And he's, he seems to have been very much a rural patriarch of the old order. Uh, the descendants have talked about how he protected all of his family like a traditional patriarch. He wouldn't let anybody harm them. He was, he was their protector until sure. he died, but he also dominated them. And I think it's reasonable to assume that he was a pretty dominant personality because that's the kind of uh, charisma, but also uh, forcefulness that I think enabled him to build the movement that he built sure. in Jones County and to gather uh, as many men around him as he did. And women, for that matter, because he did offer protection to the widows uh, in the neighborhood, that sort of thing. Right. Well, and that's one I, I'm curious about that a little bit. And I'm, I'm making my way into the play again, starting big picture and working my way back down. Um, but that I found fascinating with. Uh, which son wrote the book? Oh, Tom Knight. Um, that Tom writes this book that is constantly pointed out that paints his father to be a Robin Hood figure, but almost doesn't mention Rachel at all, right? If I'm right. And then is it Ethel or Emma? Ethel, you Ethel got it. comes back and writes the follow-up book some 30 years later, 20, 35, 40 years later. Well, he, he first put his out in 1935 and hers comes out in 1951. Okay. Yeah, so more so, like less 40, than 20. Um, but she paints him, Newt, uh, Ethel paints Newt in a completely different picture. So I, there's some of that where I went, is this first child versus, you know, seventh child syndrome, sixth child syndrome? Or she's his niece. A niece, thank you. Yeah, she's not, she's not his child. And that makes <laughs> all the world. <laughs> <laughs> but that she paints Newt in such a different picture made me really question what was true and what wasn't true in the stories yeah. that we hear about him. Well, it's, it, there's, there's truth on both sides. Sure. Uh, Tom, Tom Knight wanted uh, to tell his father's story as a hero of, of the Civil War. He, was, he, he grew up in a, in a Unionist family and he believed in the Union himself. And so he wanted to, to write about uh, he wanted to tell what he considered the true heroic story of his father, Newton Knight. But unfortunately for Tom, he was also, by 1935, very much a racist, very much ashamed of his father having crossed sure. the color line, married himself to, to uh, his third, second or third white wife, 
part of white community. And so he basically erased the story of Rachel. Rachel doesn't appear, in, nor her children, nor their children together. They don't appear at all in the 1935 version. In the 1947 version, when he republished it, he puts this oblique little mention about these colored women in there. It's really kind of sad and crazy uh, because he, he's, you can tell he's answering criticisms, but he doesn't really want to reveal any more than he absolutely has to. Uh, and so Ethel Knight, she claims he gave her all his materials and then, you know, to, to write the book up after the Davis Knight trial that you were okay. telling us all about. <laughs> and that she double-crossed him by, this is the way that, that it's been told to me, she double-crossed him by turning his father into uh, an absolute, you know, uh, uh, treason, uh, you know, somebody, yeah, she vilified him. She made him uh, guilty of treason against the noble Confederacy. You see, Ethel came from the pro-Confederate side of the Knight family. All of the families, virtually all of them were divided sure. between pro-Confederate and anti-Confederate sides, except for the Collins family. They were, they were all pro-Union. But Ethel Knight came from the pro-Confederate side of the Knight family. And so she did sort of betray Tom Knight. She got all his materials and rewrote the story. And really she reshaped the story and reshaped the whole uh, historical understanding of Newt Knight. Sure. Uh, and she did it because it was a crucial period of, uh, of, of a racist segregated South that was paranoid that mm -hmm. the civil rights movement, which was growing at that time, was going to change everything, which it did. I mean, they had reason to be fearful. Uh, the civil rights was coming. The end of segregation was coming. And it's kind of like a last gasp, her book, to, you know, let's let's bring back the Confederacy. Let's bring let's let's uh, make it clear that segregation is the law of the land and God's will made it a whole religious thing. You know, both the Confederacy right. and uh, and segregation, racial segregation presented as, as God's will, an old argument that goes way back. <laughs> yep. so, so anyway, that's the, that's the dichotomy between Tom Knight and Ethel. Ethel was, Ethel was right. Newton Knight did cross the color line. So in that sense, she was exposing a very painful truth that Tom Knight, you know, just abhorred. And you'll, of course, see that in the play where he, he gets really rattled when lawyers start throwing those well, questions that's, at him. That's that's where I'm you know headed to next is that it's so fascinating to to hear that in a historical context and have read it, but watching him try to recall these recall step family members, half family members, community members, and yeah. he gets he gets a name wrong because he I think he says, let's see, it's what does he say? It's not Edmund. But he's trying to list off Fanny. He gets Fanny and Georgian, and maybe another one. But Fanny came with them, but not with them, and not being able to remember the names of children that he, I assume, grew up with and around. He did, but you know, I think it also reflects the long estrangement from his father. I I don't know exactly when Tom Knight left the community, but I think it was at a young age because both his sister and his brother married children mm -hmm. of Rachel. He left. Uh, and I think that that part you're referring to in the trial does reflect his his lack of knowledge. And by the way, his book has so many errors about Newt Knight, the year he was born, sure. uh, different things like that, that it really tells you that he knew the union stories, but he really didn't know 
uh, a lot of his father's early history anymore. Sure. You know, he had just, he'd been away too long. And uh, when somebody brings up his sister, Molly, who married Jeff, right. Rachel's son, that's when I, I think you're kind of referring to this period in the transcript there, this section of the transcript where Tom gets really nervous and he says that, that, that wonderful line, it really struck me. Oh, that's about that supposed business. Yeah. That business. And, and that business, of course, is the thing he's been trying. He's been sitting on that all his life and trying to hide it in his own writings. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of The State of Mississippi vs. Davis Knight, featuring Victoria E. Bynum. To hear the full interview, head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Wolverine Reads. For the monthly price of a ticket to a single live production, you're granted bonus episodes like this one, as well as other backstage treats. From all of us at Wolverine Theatrics, thank you for listening, liking, and sharing.